God is the one who delivers, and he uses Moses, and he uses his brother Aaron, but it is God who delivers. And you're going to see from the Old Testament, woven through the New Testament to us today, this connection, and the connection is Jesus. The very reason that we gather on Sundays is for Jesus. The very center thought of the scriptures is Jesus. All that we do is connected to Jesus. And so it's important for us to find where Jesus is at. In the Old Testament, they pointed ahead towards him. In the New Testament, they point at him. And similarly for us today, we point towards Christ. It is the focus of our lives. He is the focus of our lives. Last week, as we started to talk through chapter 13 and 14, we identified that there was a need to consecrate ourselves. And so uh, we recognize that, that in chapter 13, the children of Israel were to consecrate their firstborn and their animals. And additionally, we looked and saw that Jesus is the perfect consecration to the, to the will of the Father, that everything he did was centered and focused on God Almighty. And God's plan for salvation in his life, in him and through him. And so through Christ, we too are consecrated. And if you remember last week, I talked through just the idea of consecration, that it means to be set apart. It's something that, that we do, that we, that we set our part, ourselves apart for God and his plan. And it's not unlike the instruments in the temple. So in the temple, there were specific instruments that were to be used in the temple now, functionally, you could have used them for a lot of different things, but they were dedicated to the Lord. They were consecrated to the Lord. And so they were to only be used in the temple and for the purpose of the temple. And in like manner, we may have lots of opportunities and ways that we could live out our lives. But as we consecrate ourselves to the Lord, we are narrowing our life to say, Lord, the things that I do and the things that I say, the way that I live my life is set apart for you. And whether I'm an electrician or a plumber or uh, I, I'm a, a homeschool teacher or I'm in homeschool, whatever I do, everything is to the glory of God, consecrated to the Lord. And I walked through that with us last week, recognizing that we're just in a different culture than, uh, than Exodus is communicated through. Uh, in those days, they would have understood everything is interconnected. In our culture, we're really good, if I can use that term, at, at uh, compartmentalizing our lives. We do this at home, we do this uh, at work, we do this at church. And we compartmentalize things. And sometimes we don't weave things through, especially our faith. And we want to be careful that that is not the case for us. So for us to take time to consecrate our lives is somewhat specific. Now, there are a variety of ways that you could do it. I would encourage you to do it this way, but you, you can do it many ways. And so I will ask you to join me as we take a time to consecrate ourselves to the Lord. And I'm going to do it this way. Uh, I'm going to start with my mind, my eyes, my nose, my mouth, my ears, my hands, my feet. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to walk through that with me as well as we, did it, as we consecrate ourselves. That you too would, to emphasize the point, maybe uh, touch, touch your head to touch just beside your eyes, to touch your nose, to touch your mouth as we go through these things together. So if you feel comfortable and if you're looking to, whatever I do, I want to consecrate my life to the Lord, then join me uh, as I walk through it. Lord, 
we consecrate our lives to you. We consecrate, first of all, our mind, that we would think thoughts on you all day long. We consecrate our eyes, O oh Lord, that we would see you at work in us and through us and around us. We consecrate our nose to you, Lord, that sin would smell like death, and that as we walk in faith, we would smell the aroma of Christ. We consecrate our ears to you, O oh Lord, that we would hear you at work and obey you quickly. We consecrate our mouth to you, O oh Lord, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good and that the words that we speak would be words of life. We consecrate our hands to you, O Lord, that we would serve you in all things. And, and Lord, that through us, you would serve others. Lord, we consecrate our feet to you, that we would be quick to obey you and, and to follow where you lead. We consecrate our lives to you, O Lord, that we would be a living sacrifice, holy and set apart for your good. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for walking through that with me. As uh, we begin, I, I, I just kind of want to bring us to this point. If you think about as we've walked through Exodus together, the children of Israel were growing they were growing and they were becoming great in Egypt. Pharaoh didn't like that. And so Pharaoh put together a plan, a policy. And the policy was to kill all the boys as they were being born, infanticide. But the midwives would have nothing to do with it because they feared the Lord over the fe fearing Pharaoh. And so they didn't do that. And God blessed the children of Israel and they continued to grow. And God called a man named Moses to himself and, and called Moses to be the spokesman. Uh, Moses, in fear and some, some humility, uh, asked for, for his brother to do that for him. So Moses and Aaron were a team, and they were called to go before Pharaoh and deliver God's word. And through a series of challenges, some humiliation to Egypt, God, with a mighty hand, brought the children of Israel out. And he brings them to this point where he says, Egypt is going to follow. But I will deliver you. And I will deliver you with a mighty hand. And that's exactly what happens as, as this life is growing. They're then pressured and pushed to this place where the Egyptian army is chasing them and they're butted up against the sea and there's nowhere for them to go except for God to deliver them. And that's exactly what God does when he commands Moses to raise his hands and God breaks the water, dividing it, and a canal appears that the children of Israel can walk through. And if we'd have eyes to see it, there is a birth of a nation that is uniquely God's nation. That God specifically wants to identify through this nation uh, his goodness, that the peoples around Israel would go, there is a God in heaven, and that this Messiah would somehow be raised up through this nation of Israel, and that the world would see this Messiah that wouldn't just save Israel, but, but would save them as well. And so we see this woven throughout this message as we tie in the scriptures and connect it to Christ. 
We're going to summarize chapter 15 and 16 in just a moment. We're going to look at a concept that is going to bring us into the developmental process of us spiritually. And then we're going to walk in together through this, through this process connecting it to Christ. Jump in with me. Moses and the Israelites sing a song of victory to God after crossing the Red Sea. You can imagine it, right? They've been slaves in Egypt. They get through. The waters divide. They get to the other side. The waters crash down. They see the Egyptians that don't make it. But they're, they're faithful in following the Lord through this uh, very scary time. And as they get to the other side, they're able to celebrate. They're not slaves anymore. It's over. They're not slaves and they're singing. The song praises God for his mighty acts of deliverance, his power over the Egyptians and his holiness, and ends with a declaration that God is the strength and salvation of his people. That's an important piece to note because they don't go, look at how good we are. We followed God and God gave us what we deserve. No, they, they point to God, that God is their strength, that God is their salvation. It's an important piece and it's one that we can't miss. Continuing on in chapter 15, the Israelites journey from the Red Sea to Marah where they find bitter water, but God provides them with sweet water. From Marah, the Israelites travel to Elim where they find 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. And God uniquely and specifically gives them rest and gives them what they need. Continuing on in chapter 16, the Israelites complain to Moses about their hunger and thirst in the wilderness. And I recognize this, we're going to revisit it in a moment. I recognize this, that it's easy from our perspective to go, why are they complaining? Well, because there are a whole lot of them walking through a desert and there's no water. Friends, you need water. Like that, that's an important piece to living. And so the complaint that they have is somewhat, it's legitimate. Where is it? God has led us out. Is it, did he lead us out to kill us? No. He led us out to give us life, and that's, that's what we see. God tells Moses that he will provide food for the Israelites in the form of manna and quail. We'll come back to that in a little bit. The Israelites gather the manna each morning, and it becomes a source of sustenance for them. The Israelites are commanded to gather a double portion of manna on the sixth day so that they do not have to gather on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath. And God lets them know, I'm going to give you rest. It's, and it's okay. On this one day, and this one day alone, you can get a double portion, and I will provide for you. That portion will last. If you try to do a double portion any other time, it's not going to work out well for you. And you see that in the narrative of the Scriptures. Uh, but in this case, on the, or just before the Sabbath, if you prepare for the Sabbath by getting a double portion, uh, God rewards that and allows them to enter into that rest. God gives the Israelites the manna as a reminder of his provision for them throughout the journey in the wilderness. God is good to his people, and he provides for them. And so as we come to this place, there, there is a phrase that I want to double down on. I want you to see it. Uh, it won't be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus 15. And I'm going to have you go down to verse 25, and I want to read it for you. 
and, and we're, we're going to highlight a word that is given in this passage because it's going to give us context and help us to make this further connection. And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So they're in this place where the water is bitter, and they don't like it. Uh, I'm going to get into the story in just a little bit about why I was in Wisconsin, but just so you know, I was in Wisconsin this last week, and while I was in Wisconsin, specifically in Oshkosh, uh, love the people of Oshkosh, just so you know, but their water is horrible. This is terrible water. Uh, it's, it it kind of smells. It's different than the water that, that we have here. Uh, it, it just tasted different. And so maybe it's legit that they're going, this water is bitter. This is not what we're used to. This is a little bit gross. What do you got for us? Okay, well, God sweetens it up for them. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. And it's that phrase that I want to focus in on, tested, that God tested them. And I've heard some people already, they've said, I didn't think that God tested people. Well, well, let's just clarify, God doesn't tempt people. God, God does test. And God allows those tests. Or if you want to use a different word, he proves. He proves. He allows a proving to occur. You have this faith, let's watch this faith, let's, let's prove it. James 1.13 says it this way, let, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In this passage, the idea of temptation is understood as a deliberate attempt to lead someone into sin, which God cannot do. God is not going to lead us into sin. He's not going to put us uh, in that place where the expectation is for you to sin. That is not what God does. But he might test. Uh, he might allow a proving to happen in our faith. In fact, we would say that this testing produces fruit. Uh, James 1, uh, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brother, when you meet trials of various kinds. How many of you just live that out every day? Yeah, whenever I get this trial, I love it. It's, it's just pure joy to me. Yeah, me too. Uh, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There is a faithfulness that this produces. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there is a testing that occurs that allows a strength to happen in the life of the believer. I like the way that 1 Peter says it. In fact, it kind of resonates with my heart the way that he addresses it. He says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It's like, uh, thank you, Peter, for identifying that, yeah, I can grieve during these trials. Like, I don't have to go, yay, a trial. I need this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise. You can underline that word if you have your Bibles. And glory, underline that. And honor, Underline that at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what we're saying is there is a purpose in the testing of our faith. That it is developing something within us spiritually. And that which it is developing is something that God uses that honors him. That we praise him in the midst of that place. That we glorify him. That we honor him 
uh, Hebrews identifies this in the life of Abraham. When he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and, and he had received the promises was uh, uh, he had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So even even Abraham is willing to go through trials and. Abraham, one of the reasons that he is identified is he's a a foundation source of our Christian faith. So in other words, we see something in Abraham that is true through believers, people who enter into faith. We see it true in Abraham and we see it lived out even in us. So what I'm talking about is that these trials do something within us. They develop something. It's purposeful. But I also want to say that it's a process. And uh, to tell you that process, I'm, I'm actually going to introduce you to somebody first. Uh, this is Miss Kennedy. Miss Kennedy is my granddaughter. She was born on Monday, uh, February 13th. I love Miss Kennedy. I'm completely smitten. I'm deep in smit with this child. Uh, I, I love her with all my heart. I you know, it, it's funny. Someone said, Kenny, you just proved that you're the Grinch. And I said, what, what do you mean? And they said, well, you said that your heart was full of love for your kids, but then when Kennedy was born, your heart grew three sizes. There was more place for love is what I'm saying. Uh, there, there was something there that I didn't know was there, and it was a love for this little girl. And uh, uh, just a fantastic uh, situation. She was actually due today. So today was the due date. And I put, she's going to be born on February 14th because I thought it would be sweet to have a Valentine's Day gift. That's, that's what I was thinking. And Miss Kennedy, apparently she found that out and said, I do it on my own time the way I want to. And, and uh, she came at uh, 10.09 p.m. on the 13th. Her daddy and mom, so, so her daddy is my son and uh, mother, they came up with a plan for delivery. And this was the plan. They said, we're going to be in the delivery room by ourselves. So no offense. We love you guys, but we're, we're going to be in there by ourselves uh, w- with, the, um, with the nurse. And uh, you're welcome to come to the hospital and see Kennedy and spend time with her. That'd be great. And then when we come home, we're just going to spend those three days just kind of getting in a groove, you know. And, uh, and, and, and uh, then the next weekend, maybe you guys can come in and see her. And we're like, hey, yeah, that's a great plan. We'll do that. So after 13 hours of labor, we're in the family room, and uh, the nurse comes flying in. She breaks the door down. She's like, all moms in the delivery room now. And uh, Cindy, my wife, she did like this. Yes. You know, yes. She almost knocked the nurse down getting to the delivery room. It was so great. So she, she gets back there, and, and the baby doesn't come for another, like, three hours, you know. So she's back there for a long time just encouraging and, and walking through this with my daughter-in-law, Jessica, and my son, Josiah. And it was just a, a beautiful time for her. And then um, we're there till after midnight because, of course, we would be. We're just enamored with this baby. And uh, we get a text early, early in the morning the next day from my son, Josiah, and he goes, I know we were thinking that maybe we would be home by ourselves for three days. But what do you say you stay the week with us? And Cindy did like this. Yes. <laughs> I came prepared. And uh, I said, well, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back, but your mom will. And they're like, that's fantastic. 
And, and the point is, things change. There was this pressure on Jessica as she was growing. And as she was growing, this pressure came. And it, it took some time for this baby to progress out of this water breaking and through the canal into this new life. But the life that she's experiencing on this side of things compared to where she was, it was, it was dark, it was cramped. Uh, there was pressure in that place. Here, there is life, there is newness that she couldn't imagine on that other side. And if this happens in a physical sense, don't you think that it would make sense that it also happens in a spiritual sense? Uh, Miss Kennedy, when she came, she could only do a couple of things. She could cry, which I got to tell you, I was, I was from here uh, to, uh, to just outside where the Welcome Center is, away from the delivery room, and I could hear my granddaughter cry, and I did like this. Yes! Here's why. My Josiah, he cried all the time. He was a colicky baby, and I thought, that's what you get. Uh, <laughs> it was fantastic. I was so encouraged. Uh, by the way that that baby, she was crying. It came from her feet and all the way out. She could cry. Uh, she can also use the potty. She's pretty good at that. And uh, that was, that, that's fantastic. That's the way babies should be. But that's all she can do. Uh, eventually, she's going to be able to lift her head. She's eventually going to be able to turn over. She's eventually going to be able to lift herself up. When we're holding her in those days. She does this baby bounce. You ever seen little babies do that? You're like, what are you doing? They look like little frogs. Yep, and they just bounce. Uh, and their legs are getting stronger, and they're learning, uh, they're learning how to get their balance, and they're getting strong enough to stand up, and then, then they start to walk. And then you have to lock everything because they're into everything, right? And then they learn how to run, and they get into it faster. Now, this is a process and these processes have to happen. We don't just expect, like, uh, when the kids took Miss Kennedy home, they didn't go, well, Kennedy, get in your car seat. No, they, she hadn't progressed to that stage. And there are steps that have to occur. And so it is with us. Spiritually, there are steps that need to occur. If you have your phones, I would encourage you to take a picture of this so that you can... Uh, zoom in on it. It, it. It's really difficult to read. I, I recognize that and I apologize, but uh, I'll walk through it so you can see it. This is a, a diagram that's, uh, that's used in a book called Disciple Shift. And Disciple Shift tells us that uh, there is a process for things. And that process starts with we, we are dead in sin and death and we need to be awakened to life. And from there, we become infants, Right? We're just babies in the Lord, and then we become children, and then we become young adults, and then we become parents, and this, this process has a, a systematic step to it, and you can identify it as we go, and that's what we'll do. So if you look to the 12 o'clock location, that black bar, and then go to the right, uh, what it says there is that the person is dead. The characterization of that person in that section is death. They are in sin and death. There is darkness in that place. They don't know Christ as their Savior. So how do we get life to occur in that section? That's the question. Well, we share. We share the gospel specifically. What is the gospel? Well, well the gospel starts with the bad news that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. Uh, 
we have been separated from God. We get paid the wages of sin, that's death. That means separation from God. That's what happens in this section that is death. And so we need the gospel. It starts with the bad news, we're sinners. But there is good news. And the good news is that God came in the flesh, that he died on the cross for our sins. He conquered sin and death, rose from the grave and gives life to anybody who would call on him. That's the good news. That's the gospel. We need to hear it all the time, but especially in this section to someone who doesn't know the Lord. They need to hear that clear gospel message so that they can respond in faith. And when they do, they enter into the next section, which is infancy. It's characterized by ignorance. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean they don't know what they don't know, right? Like most people haven't studied the Bible before coming to Christ. There's just not really that interest. Or they're only using the Bible to make a case about something uh, that they want, right? That, which is not the right way to use the Bible. So there's ignorance. So what do we do? Well, we continue to share the gospel, but we also share our life. We share truth. We share spiritual habits. We share our life. We share truth. We share spiritual habits. I'll, I'll never forget the pastor that discipled me initially after coming to Christ. He said, okay, Kenny, it's time to pray. And I was like, oh, okay, do I just like, do I need to put my hands together and close my eyes? And he goes, well, you, you can do that, but God can hear you whether your eyes are open or closed. Like, God is that good. And I went, oh, I never, never knew that. I needed trained. I was ignorant. Uh, I needed uh, help. I needed someone to share their life with me. I needed someone to share the, tr the truth of God's word with me and spiritual habits. And that's what happens in that first quadrant. The next quadrant, this is identified with self-centeredness. So as, an in, uh, as a child, self-centeredness. Again, that's not a mean thing. We're just saying that they're very self-aware. I am hungry now. I need fed right now. I want to play right now. Oh, I have so much energy. I don't know what to do. And this self-centeredness or self-awareness is what characterized this quadrant. And in this quadrant, we need to help them get connected. We help them get connected to God. We help them to get connected in small groups or life groups. We help them get connected to purpose. There is more in your life than this other stuff. This other stuff is just stuff and things. We need to narrow ourselves in on God's plan because God has a plan for you. And he wants you to separate yourself for his work. And this is a time that we do that, even in that childhood stage of spiritual development. And then we go on to young adult Young adulting, uh, it's characterized as more God-centered and others-centered. Service is a big part of this young adult phase. And so we want to help them to minister. We do that by training them how. This is what it looks like. Early on in ministry, uh, uh, one of the pastors took me out on a hospital call. The person was dying of cancer. And when I say dying of cancer, I mean they, they, they had hours left and I was scared to death like I what do you say to somebody who you know is about to die how, how do you bring comfort how do you not overstep your bounds well I, I watched this pastor navigate that lovingly and kindly and graciously and and giving honor to the person and speaking bold truths to encourage them uh, I, I needed to see that in real time this pastor did that he gave opportunities the next time we went, he said, you saw me, now you lead it. I'm like, I'll lead it. I'm not ready. He goes, too bad. And 
uh, I got to lead that time. And at the end, he said, that was really good. Here are some things I really loved. I'd never thought about that before. Here are some things I would encourage you to reconsider and do differently. Thank you. And then he released me. Hey, go to the hospital. Go see those people. Someone's in the hospital. I need you to check on them. That was a great way for me to grow in my faith. And these trials bring us up to these places of growth. And then we get to the next, and that's parents, spiritual parents. Uh, What categorizes spiritual parents is strategy or intentionality. They're, They're doing things on purpose and for purpose. And as people graduate into this stage, we want to help them understand the discipleship process. We want to help them to disciple, and we want to release them to disciple others. Okay, you've been a part of this. You've seen it. Go do it. Have fun. This is a part of our spiritual journey. One of the reasons that I share this with us today is because we are watching spiritual development happen in Exodus, but I suspect you're also seeing the spiritual development happen in your own life. It, it would be wrong of me to not state this, so let me be clear. Wherever you are on this, there are going to be times, days, maybe weeks, where you're acting like an infant again. <laughs> it just happens. Uh, we just go to those places and it's like, oh, nope, I'm being a baby. I, okay, I, I'm better than this. <laughs> God has done a work in me. I, I can graduate out of this. And we do. There'll be times where uh, you're, you're acting like a child or you're acting like a young adult. You're acting like a parent. And, and those seasons, we just want to go back to it and make sure that we're continuing to develop into that next stage. Why? Well, for Christ. Because Christ didn't give his life so that we could just be comfortable and in one place, but rather that there is a developmental process that occurs that as trials come, they kind of push us into that next stage of spiritual growth. And as we enter into those next stages of spiritual growth, we give praise to God, we give glory to God, and we give honor to God. And, and that helps us to develop. So let's jump in. And let's look at this process, and we're going to look at this process uh, from infancy, because that's exactly what happens. There is a birthing that occurs for the nation of Israel, and this birthing is a new nation, life that occurs, but it's also reflected in us individually and perhaps even corporately as a church. As we walk to uh, to this new life, we see how that is true in our life in Christ. So, first of all, the water breaks. In Exodus chapter 14, Moses stretched out his hands over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. We see the water breaking and being divided, a canal uh, emerging, and they have to enter. Now, Now, here's the key to this. This is what makes them different than Egypt is that when Israel enters into this, it's because they're following God. They're choosing to follow God in those moments. Uh, They're being faithful to follow God. Egypt is not following God. Egypt is following people So because of vain ambition and conceit. And Jesus says it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, just just so we're clear, the born of water 
is exactly what we're talking about, like that physical birth. The water breaks and you're born. So to be born again, you have to be born the first time. And then to be born again is a spiritual birth that occurs. And Jesus wants us to know that. Like we're, we are spiritually going through this, this water that is being broken and, and into this canal. In Exodus 14, the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea. Can you imagine what that would have been like? These walls of water, perhaps, that are being divided and they're going on dry ground. There's not, like, their sandals aren't getting muddy. They're not getting up to their knees in muck and mire. It is dry and they're walking through it. And as they're walking through it, perhaps they're even thinking, Never seen anything like this. Never in a million years would I have thought, being in Egypt, that this would be happening to me. I've heard the promises, but I always thought it would be someone else. And it is happening to me right now as I'm walking through this into freedom. You can imagine the joy that is occurring. It's not easy to follow God. In fact, God has to miraculously show up and divide the Egyptians from uh, the Hebrews. But he does that. And allows them to walk through it. The New Testament tells us that in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We too can walk through that canal. We have the ability in Christ, because of Christ, we can get out of, uh, out of sin and death and into the promises of God. That place of pressure, that place of darkness, God has life intended. And that's exactly what he gives us in Christ. We might even say it uh, a little bit differently uh, in, in chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, we might look at it in this respect, and that is this, that, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the sin and death that happened on this side of the waters, it, it doesn't have to affect me anymore. I am set free. I am not condemned by that, but I I am now able to walk in life, and that's where we go next. Coming out on the other side, the, the the, the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. They they're not coming after me anymore. They're not chasing me. They're dead. Israel chose to walk in faith after God. Egypt chose to walk. Uh, after people for their own vain conceit and selfish ambition. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, we walk in a new kingdom, not the kingdom of sin and death, but this kingdom of Christ. And it produces new life. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. We see something happen with Israel. What is that? They sing. They come up on the other side, and they sing praises. Perhaps that's exactly what we should be doing. When Kennedy was born, there was some music playing. Uh, That's what the hospital does when babies are born. There's a little bit of music playing. Oh, there's a baby born. But also, Cindy comes running back there because they're they're cleaning up the room and everything and and preparing Miss Kennedy for the rest of us. And 
and, and for mom. And as, as they're doing that, Cindy comes running back into the room and she's like, she was born. She's here. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, she's so beautiful. Kenny, wait until you see her. Oh, she has a lot of hair. And I said, my hair, because I can't find it. And she said, shut up. And, and, and she said, oh, she's just so beautiful. I can't wait for you to see her. God is good to us. Why? Because that is the natural response to life. That's the natural response coming out of death and into this new mysterious kingdom of God. It's dynamically different, but it causes us to praise. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are different than you were before. But you will need nourishment. That was one of the things that became very clear as Miss Kennedy began to cry. She was hungry. Well, she was a busy girl that day. There was a lot going on. Tough stuff. But her big guts were eating her little guts, and she was so hungry, she didn't know what to do with it. I was just kidding. Her big guts weren't like, that's not a medical thing. I'm just saying, she was hungry. So she's really hungry, and she starts to cry and let everybody know about it. And that is really natural, and it is common. So when we look at Israel and we go, look at them, why are they whining? Well, because they're hungry, because they're thirsty, and that's what babies do. And that's what this nation was at that time. They're babies. They, they don't know what they don't know. Miss Kennedy didn't know. She had, never had, she had never nursed before. She had just been connected to a tube, and her, her tummy was fine. She didn't have this issue before, and now she does. She didn't know what to do with it. And so... God provides manna, a bread-like substance for the Israelites to eat in the wilderness. So, somebody commented between services, I thought it was worth commenting. This, this manna is different. Uh, it's bread-like. Not in the way that Valveda is cheese-like. That's an important piece to understand. It's better than bread. When Cindy and I first got married, uh, I cooked and, we, and, and uh, Cindy said, what is that? That's what manna means. What is it? And so we had manna a lot whenever I cooked in the first days. There was a lot of manna, I'll just tell you. Uh, it was a food-like substance, though. Now, manna is perfect. Uh, it's everything that they needed, and it was God's miraculous way of providing for them. And that's exactly what God did. He provided for them in a miraculous way. In the New Testament, and by the way, this points us to Jesus in a very specific way. Jesus says that he is the bread of life in the New Testament. He sustains us and nourishes us in a spiritual way, but in a very real way. Also, rest was needed. I love that God identifies, hey, after this birth, you're going to need rest because you've never known it before. You, you just kind of existed over here, just like a baby just kind of exists in the womb. It just kind of does its own thing. It's awake, it's asleep, who knows, right? It moves around, it does move around, uh, kicks. It, it's doing its own thing. God establishes a rhythm. Uh, you don't have to worry about what happened in the past. Let me give you a rhythm. And in this rhythm, you need rest. Because rest is going to help you to grow into that next stage that you need to go into. Rest is an opportunity for you to trust me in a new and in a different way than you have before. Uh, rest is something that is needed. And, and so uh, God tells them that I will provide manna. You just get it enough for that day, every day, except before the Sabbath. 
Before the Sabbath, you collect two days' worth. And, and I will miraculously make that last. And you'll be full. And God does that. But that's a picture of who Jesus is. Matthew 12, 8 and Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and the giver of rest for our souls. It's Jesus who does that. It's the, the rest, the Sabbath, is a picture of who Jesus is. Now, I would say this. You can choose to not rest, to not take a Sabbath rest, and just say, yep, Jesus is my Sabbath, and that's good. You could do that. But I want to challenge you to not. Uh, I want to challenge you to find a Sabbath rest, to make a point to allow a carved-out time of your life, a 24 25-hour period where you are able to rest and trust God, and you may have to prepare for it. In fact, I'm going to say you will have to prepare for it. And maybe it's putting stuff in the fridge. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's getting all the work. Maybe you're only using paper plates on that. I don't know what you're doing. Uh, but you're going to have to prepare ahead so that you can rest on that day and enjoy that day and see how God provides as a physical example of a spiritual reality. And we see that fulfilled ultimately in Christ. So we see this movement, this birth of a nation and a nourishment that needs to occur in the, in the form of uh, hunger and how God provides and in the form of rest also how God provides. And so we have to ask some questions of ourselves. How can the story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea be a reminder of our own spiritual birth and journey? So we see how Israel did this, how it played out for them. How is that true for me? How have I seen God at work, how he rescued me from sin and death and slavery of sin and death and brought me into a new life? How have I been uh, uh, responding to the trials in my life and growing as a believer from an infant to a child to a young adult to a parent? In what ways does God allow us to face temptations and trials to strengthen and mature our faith? You may be going through something right now that God wants to use. could be physical. Uh, it, it could be more month than money. It could be a lot of trials that God is allowing in your life, uh, some testing that you would advance in your walk with the Lord. What is that? How can we reflect on the idea that just as God provided sustenance for the Israelites in the form of manna, he continues to provide for and nourish us as Christians? How, how is Christ sustaining us? There are all these things in our life, but we said uh, we're consecrated to the Lord. How is the Lord helping us to walk in this place? And as the worship team comes out and we go on to uh, the, the fourth question, how can we embrace the concept of Sabbath rest in our lives as both a physical and a spiritual practice in light of Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath? How do we enter into a time of rest weekly, acknowledging that God wants to build into us some rhythm, spiritual disciplines, some habits that allow us to rest, but also reflect how Jesus is our rest. How might God want to do that in your life? As we transition to a time of communion, there are a few things that I want to state as we prepare. 
First of all, communion was commanded by the Lord for believers, for followers of Jesus. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to participate. You don't have to be a member of Friendship Church, but you, you do have to be a follower of Jesus because that's who this is for. Additionally, we're commanded in scriptures uh, to evaluate, to examine our hearts. And I, I would encourage you to pause before the Lord to say, Lord, is there any unconfessed sin uh, that exists in me? Uh, maybe that's an attitude or maybe that's an action throughout this week. And what that would mean then is that we would repent of that sin by confessing that to the Lord. Lord, I, I lied. Lord, I had a bad attitude. Lord, I, whatever that is, we confess it and then we follow the Lord. Uh, that's what that looks like. I would encourage you to do that. And then once you have the peace of the Lord to move forward, you can go to the carpeted areas and to the station that's nearest you, getting both the bread and the cup, and then returning to your seat, and we'll worship together, and at the end of this worship song, we'll participate together. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word and that it's true and it's good. We thank you, Lord, for setting us apart for your work in Christ. That no matter what we do, we are, we are dedicated to you. And Lord, even as we see this life played out in Exodus, we recognize that there is a spiritual journey that is reflected in this story. And so, as we look at our own spiritual journey, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, that we would see you at work in the midst of us and respond in faith to you. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.